Good morning. Good to see everybody. If you find your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9. We are going to finish the book of Esther this morning. I hope you have enjoyed it as much as, as I have. I've really enjoyed walking through this book with you. Uh, overlooked by many, misunderstood by most. Uh, but hopefully over the last couple of weeks, you and I have come to a, I think a faithful understanding of what this book is all about, that God's providential hand is orchestrating all things for the glory of His name and for the good of His people. We've seen His sovereign hand, not His hand, but we've seen like the wind causing the trees to blow. We've seen His hand orchestrating these events to take place. We've seen this historic feud between uh, King Saul and Agag the Amalekite reintroduced in Mordecai and Haman. Today, all of the loose ends of our story will be neatly tied together. We're going to see the narrator's main purpose for even writing Esther. I mean, we've been hearing this story about uh, God delivering his people from the uh, wicked decree of Haman. But what is the purpose of this story? Why did the narrator choose to write it? We'll find out today as we read about the origin of the Feast of Purim. I'm a little bit farther back than I usually am. Let's see. All right. And last but not least, we will join the uh, Old Testament people of God in both celebrating and remembering, as well as looking forward to God's works of Redemption. As we finish Esther, we will see that we are a part of the people of God. And part of what it means to be part of the people of God is that we celebrate and remember all that God has done, and we look forward to what He will continue to do. So we have a lot to get through, and we're going to read chapter, all of chapter 9 and chapter 10, but don't freak out. Chapter 10 is only three verses long, so uh, almost just a little conclusion. So let's start in verse 1 together. Um, when you see the title on the screen, before we read, I'll just explain that for a moment. The, the title of the message is Looking Back and Looking Ahead. As you'll find out, the narrator of this story is writing the story of Esther, writing the story of the deliverance of God's people, so that the people of Israel might look back and remember, oh, this is why we celebrate the Feast of Purim. But it's also so that they might look ahead to a greater deliverer, someone who is even greater than Mordecai, who will actually bring them into a kingdom that God would call his own. So let's read, starting in verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in the cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them, for Mordecai was great in the king's house. And his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha 
and Poratha, and Adalia, and Aradatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Aradai, and Baizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hands on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what, is, what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that a, a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making, it, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns, hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh Lord, there is a lot here to unpack, but the, the grand theme is this. If we are on the side of the Lord God, we are on the side of victory. Lord, who can stand against you? There is no one who can stop your power. There is no one who can harm your decree. And so, Lord, I pray that as we read about the people of God receiving victory, conquering their enemies in faithfulness to your promise and your word, would you help us to see that we, just like them, can walk day in and day out, filled with the Spirit of God in victory over our enemy, our sin. Lord, help us to look ahead to a greater deliverer than Mordecai, that when Jesus comes again to make all things right, to usher in your kingdom, we would be ready. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to split chapter 9 and half. We read the first half, and here we see very, very clearly uh, the first point, which is the people of God are victorious. The people of God are victorious. It seemed as though all throughout this story, uh, there was this threat against Israel. There was this threat against the people of God. But the tables have turned. The reversals of Esther climax in this battle between Israel and her enemies. So not only did the king give the order for Israel to defend itself, but the officials throughout the empire are now helping the Jews because the fear of Mordecai, it says, had fallen on them. Politicians, those in political power, want to be in good graces with those who have power over them. And this is just a standard practice, right? They always want to be in good graces with those who can help them. And unfortunately, this little uh, episode shows us that many in positions of power in the world empire, many who are in positions of influence, are willing to switch their allegiance on a dime if it serves them. 
So the fear of Mordecai fell on the officials, and so the officials helped the people of Israel. So the Jews struck their enemies and killed them. <clears throat> and this seems a bit harsh, right? When we read that 500 men in Susa died and 75,000 men all, or 75,000 people all throughout the empire were killed, you think like, man, that's kind of brutal. But remember that these were deaths dealt in self-defense. We learned last week in Esther chapter 8 that the decree was for Israel to defend itself against these enemies. So it's not like it's not like there are bands of Israelites roaming the streets of the Persian Empire going, all right, who are some, who are some Persians we can kill? No, it's they've, they've huddled up to defend themselves, and as attackers come to try to harm them, they are able to defend themselves well. God is, through the destruction of the Persians, pronouncing judgment on them because they have sought harm for their covenant people. Haman's ten sons, which I did practice to pronounce correctly, they were also killed, apparently seeking to continue their father's order. So just as though Haman was trying to destroy the people of God, Haman's ten sons sought to avenge his father, their father's death, but they too were killed. So Esther asks for an extension, right? The king is like, man, 500 people in Susa wanted the people of Israel to die? That's crazy. I mean, I wonder what's going on everywhere else. So Esther, I mean, what do you want to do now? And Esther says, hey, look, uh, let, let, let us extend this one more day. It seems as though Esther had information that some of Israel's enemies were just going to wait that day out until the decree had been uh, completed and then go try to harm the Israelites in their own vengeance. And so Israel uh, was given another day. Esther uh, asked for the decree to be extended. And 300 more men were killed. Around the provinces, 75,000 were killed. Now, in many ways, this is a fulfillment of God's original decree of holy war given to Saul against King Agag in 1 Samuel 15. You remember way back in the first couple of chapters of Esther, we saw that Haman was described as an Agagite. He was a descendant of King Agag, the king of the Amalekites during the time of King Saul. And Saul was given a command from God to go and destroy the Amalekites, to judge them, to hand them over to destruction, to kill Agag, to kill the king, but not to lay any hands on their possessions, not to plunder them and take their spoils away. But what did Saul do? You can go back and read 1 Samuel 15 for yourself, but in a nutshell, uh, they go and destroy the Amalekites, but they don't kill the king. And they do take the plunder. They take their prized possessions. They take their cattle. They take their sheep. So they, they fail to uphold God's decree in these two main ways. They did not kill the king, and they took the plunder. They took the spoil. Here, in Esther chapter 9, Israel's enemies were completely destroyed. And those who would represent Agag, if, if Haman is an Agagite, you can bet that his ten sons are also Agagites. And what happens in Esther chapter 9? Those ten sons are destroyed and they are put on display for the world to see that the people of God has destroyed the Agagites. And in Esther chapter 8, we learn that they were able to take plunder. They were able to loot the Persians who would attack them. But over and over, you see that they did not lay any hands on the plunder. They didn't lay any hands on the spoil. So it brings this age-old rivalry and tension between the people of God and the Amalekites, I think, to a conclusion. On the whole, 
the Jews rested on the 14th of Adar and enjoyed a day of feasting and gladness. But because of the extension, the Jews in Susa enjoyed the 15th of Adar as their day of victory. So there are these two days, the 14th in the rural areas, the 15th in Susa, the main city, where the people of God are resting from their enemies, they're feasting, they're full of gladness and joy, they're celebrating the victory that they have achieved. In a stunning reversal in the book of Esther, the Persian Empire, which was bent on erasing the people of God from their population, now witnessed the destruction of all of the people who were God's enemies. Haman's wicked plot has been fully turned on its head. And notice how it came about. How is it that God brought about this conclusion? It's because God's people were faithful. They defended themselves as God's people and followed His command. So these Israelites identified as the people of God. They didn't hide their identity. And when they were attacked, they defended themselves and God saw fit to deliver them from their enemies. A similar thing is true for us. You and I have a life full of victory over our sin if we are in Christ. Now that our representative has defeated our great enemy on the cross, we live with the indwelling Spirit who empowers us to walk in faithful victory. We can put our sins to death. You can really do this if you are a Christian. If you have the Spirit of God within you, you can say no to sin. It doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it simple. It doesn't make it natural. But it does make it possible that we can be equipped with armor from God and be given a a weapon. So you go to Ephesians chapter 6 and you learn that uh, there is an armor of God that you and I put on to withstand the attacks of the enemy. And armor is defensive, right? Armor is naturally something for defense, not for offense. But you are given a weapon. In Ephesians chapter 6, you are given the sword of the Spirit, so that you might do battle, not against flesh and blood, Paul says in Ephesians, but against the rulers and against authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy is not a people group like the Amalekites. Our enemy is not someone persecuting us like Haman or the sons of Haman. Our enemy is the devil and sin. And because of Christ because of the Spirit who dwells within you as a believer, you have the capacity to have victory over your enemies, just like the people of God in Esther 9. Now that the threat is gone for the people of God in Esther, now that those people have been destroyed, they will respond on those two days, the 14th and the 15th of Adar, with celebration and remembrance. That's our second point this morning. So if you're taking notes, Not only do the people of God have victory, not only they are victorious, but second, the people of God celebrate and remember. Celebrate and remember. Let's pick it up in verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, 
and from morning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. And he cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. Listen closely to verse 25. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, these, therefore they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fail to disuse, fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed in their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. So here it is. This passage tells us why do we have the book of Esther? Like, why is this in the Bible? Why is this a part of our Old Testament? It's because the people of Israel needed to be reminded, why is it that every 14th and 15th of Adar, we have this giant feast and celebrate and have a holiday and rest from our work? Why do we do this? Answer, because God delivered his people in the time of Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew. This is why Esther is written for God's people. Mordecai writes a letter to the people of Israel throughout the empire to celebrate this event in their history. It's a time of feasting and gladness because their enemies have been defeated. We get a synopsis of all that's taking place in this book in verses 23 through 28, but there's some wonderful truths. So I told you to listen to verse 25. Let's go back to verse 25. When it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head. Okay. That doesn't sound like it really lines up with what really happened. Right? I mean, we learned all throughout the story that the king never makes decisions on his own, that he's not really concerned about other people, that he's more concerned about himself than anybody else. But this, this letter seems to indicate that the king is this righteous and holy man who is uh, uh, considerate of the people of God and wants this enemy, Haman, to be destroyed and his ten sons to be destroyed. What is this? Well, there's another question behind that question, which is where in this verse do you know that the king in question is King Ahasuerus? You see, I think Mordecai is being really clever here. I think Mordecai is writing this letter and he's saying two things at the same time. On the one hand, he is saying that King Ahasuerus ordered that this edict be created. But behind that, I think there is another 
king who rules over everything who actually is for the good of the people of God. That's why the king is not mentioned by name in this verse. Also, look at verse 27. The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them. That without fail, they would keep these two days. Who gets to celebrate Purim? The Jews, their offspring, and all who joined them. Students, the people of God is not a collection of merely physical descendants of Abraham. Praise God, because very few, if any of us, are physical descendants of Abraham. No, the people who get to celebrate God's deliverance is any who would remember and celebrate God's faithfulness to His people. In other words, those who trust in God are His people and are thus invited to celebrate, invited to remember. The point here is that God's people are commanded to regularly celebrate and remember their deliverance. There's a particular time given, the 14th and the 15th of this particular month, There's a particular thing to do. We're to feast and to enjoy one another and to have gladness instead of sorrow. It's not a time for fasting. It's not a time for lamenting. It's a time of joy. And it's not a time of putting people to death. All right? So in the 13th and 14th of the month, the main thing that happened was that God's enemies were destroyed. But they don't rehearse that every year. What did they rehearse? Rest. They rehearse rest from their enemies. They rehearse deliverance from their threats. Redemption, not destruction, is what's in view in the Feast of Purim. And every year, God's people were to honor this command and spend time celebrating and remembering God's faithfulness. Because they, like us, are a forgetful people. Like Passover is to the Exodus story, Purim is a symbol for Israel to remember that God's providential power is always in action over all things. We too have a time for celebration and remembrance. And in God's grace, He's seen fit not to allow us only one time a year to celebrate and remember, but it's every week on the Lord's Day, Sunday. We remember the defeat of our enemy. We remember the deliverance from our king. And specifically in the Lord's Supper, we remember that the Christ's body was broken and his blood was spilled for our salvation. Certainly there are specific times that you and I as Christians can gather together to remember and celebrate God's deliverance. I think about Christmas time. I think about Easter. Maybe even your own Spiritual birthday, I mean, some of you probably celebrate that. That's wonderful. But we have a day every week that should be set aside for this kind of enjoyment. I mean, just think, we have life in Christ. Death has been defeated for you and for me. The thing that we look forward to in the future, once with dread, we now look forward to with excitement. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament is a day of reckoning. It's a day of judgment. It's a day to be feared. It's a day that would strike fear into the hearts of sinners. But for those who are in Christ, the day of the Lord is a day of rejoicing. It's a day of glory. It's a day of gladness. We were blind 
but now we see. We're surrounded by those who've experienced the regenerating work of the Spirit. Every Sunday, we gather together and think, yes, that's who I am. That's who we are. That's what's happened to us. That the Christ, the Son of God, came to earth and saved you and me. We get to respond every week to that reminder with worship. We get to remember and then we respond to that revelation. We respond to those memories with celebration and worship. We get to praise God and His holiness. We get to worship Him and His mighty acts. We get to read and celebrate who He is in His Word. That's what we do on the Lord's Day. We have much more to celebrate every Sunday than Israel did during the Feast of Purim. Students, I'm, I'm hoping and encouraging you to get a high view of the Lord's Day. This is not a normal day. It's not a normal day. This one day out of the week is a day that God in His wisdom has seen fit to make unique in your life. That this day could be set aside for worship. This day could be set aside for remembering. This day could be set aside for celebrating. It doesn't mean that you just have to turn off your life. No, I'm asking you to, to wake up a little bit more and to see what God has done. And every week we can be reminded of that together. What we do when we gather together matters. So last but not least, the people of God celebrate and remember. And in chapter 10, the people of God, number three, they look to a greater deliverer. They look to a greater deliverer. Queen Esther was their mediator, Mordecai their deliverer. But look at verse 1 of chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Bam. The ones who have been delivered from their enemies are immediately reminded at the very end of Esther, you are still in exile. This is not your home. This kingdom is run by a pagan. The place in which you live is not under the lordship of God. It's under the lordship of those who do not worship God. The people of God and Esther are celebrating deliverance from their enemies, but there is one glaring fact that remains. The kingdom has not come. They're still in exile. They're still under the rule of King Ahasuerus. The fact that this taxation extends all the way to the coastlands in verse 1 shows the extent of the king's power over his empire. This is like the outskirts of his land, and he's able to impose a tax and receive it from those people. He has control. He has power in this place. Final deliverance has not yet come for God's people. Look at verse 2. All the acts of his power and might and the full amount of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. He was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all people. Mordecai is the one who ends the book, right? Mordecai, the one who is 
well thought of, the one who seeks the welfare of his people and speaks peace to his people. Mordecai, the one who is second in command only to the king, the one who is obedient to God and was exalted by the king to a place of prominence and authority. He's the one who ends this book. We see that he's great for two main reasons. First, he sought the welfare of his people. Mordecai, as a leader, was devoted to the good of his people, just like the prophet Jeremiah taught in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 9, to seek the welfare of the city. And second, he spoke peace to all of his people. He was a peacemaker. These are wonderful truths that I think point us to Christ. But for the people of God in Esther, the state of affairs is this. Mordecai is highly regarded. He is prominent. He's well-respected, but he is not king. They've been delivered from physical enemies, but the promises of God to David of a king who will rule forever is not yet here. Israel has plenty to celebrate at the end of the book of Esther, and yet much to look forward to. Because in Christ, the suffering servant, the righteous one, is not only exalted by God, but he is made king. All authority in heaven on earth is given to him. And so we as Christians can praise God because we know that the king has come and he's coming again. We as the people of God continue to celebrate and remember, but we also, like the Israelites in Esther, we also look forward to our final destiny where all of our enemies will be gone for good, where our king will reign in his fullness. There, our welfare will be secure. And there, all we will know is peace. So until that day comes, I hope that you will join me in inviting others to join in on the celebration and to join in on the waiting. Those who are outside the kingdom have a way in through Christ. As soon as I hope you've enjoyed Esther as much as I have. It's been an encouraging book, a convicting book, a beautiful reminder that the providence of God is invincible. No matter what your circumstances are, you can trust. You can trust that God is always working, always moving, always preserving, always orchestrating his creation for his glory and for our good. And in light of where we are in the world, both just socio-politically and with a pandemic and with countless vices among the people of our culture and countless false teachers and false prophets who try to influence us to do the wrong thing, what a reminder that is helpful for us. How helpful, I pray, is Esther to you. So let's pray. Oh Lord, we, we do thank you that your word is both timely and timeless. It's, it's timeless. It transcends culture. It transcends eras. It transcends individuals. It is able to speak the same word throughout the ages. And yet, this timeless word is always timely. It's always relevant. It's always helpful to us in the moment that we're in. 
So God, I pray that we would, like the people of God in Esther, see the joy that we have in remembering and celebrating your faithfulness, your goodness, your power, your salvation. And we have much more to celebrate because we celebrate as those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, who have been indwelled by the Spirit of Christ, who have been ushered into the throne of grace. We've been given access to God the Father, the one who has adopted us into his family. So God, help us as the people of God to celebrate, to remember, to look ahead to your coming deliverance when the Son returns in glory. Until that day comes, Lord, we pray that you might find us faithful in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.